I may have the teacher, uh, the teacher's name wrong in this story, but I do know that a few years ago, right up here at our very own Chase County Schools, a kindergartner was called up to the desk of his kindergarten teacher because this young man had, uh, he just hadn't been doing any of his schoolwork. He just wasn't doing anything. So it was time that his teacher confronted him. And she called him up to her desk to talk to him about the importance of his schoolwork. And this young man kind of smiled and took a deep breath. And he was sure that he had the reasonable explanation that would calm uh, these concerns about his lack of schoolwork. And she said, he said to her, you see, Mrs. Cup." I just want to do the stuff that I want to do. Like, duh, right? Like, the rest of this rot you give me, like, I, just, I don't want to do it. So, hope that makes you feel better. I don't think it did. I don't think it did. That story um, is at the same time hilarious to me and instructive about the human condition. See, we don't have to learn to become self-focused or rebellious. We are born with all of that we will ever need. And basically, that line could, could almost sum up all of our problems between us, not and our kindergarten teacher, but us and our God. You see, God, I just want to do the stuff I want to do. Isn't that our problem? And the, the sanctification process, in other words, that process by which redeemed people, when we believe on Jesus Christ for our salvation, uh, and we are waiting to be perfected one day, that growth process, I think should be thought of Less like what sins am I no longer sinning, though that's important, or what good things am I now starting to do. I think it should almost be thought of more like the process of moving from that place where I want to do what I want to do to a place where we start to say, well, I at least want to want to do. I have a desire. I wish I wanted to do what you wanted to do until His will starts to be done in here to the point where we honestly find ourselves saying, holy smokes, God, I real, I, what I want to do are the things you want done. Our obedience will take care of itself. If we could just get to that point. But sometimes there, there's a big difference between what we want to do and what God would want to see done in us. Last week, we began 1 Samuel 15. We're going to spend four weeks in 1 Samuel 15. Last week, we read just the first three verses where God told the king of Israel, Saul, what in this one limited instance, what obedience would look like, and he was given a terrible job. 
God told King Saul that obedience for him in this instance would be to wipe out an entire people group, the Amalekites, men, women, children, and all of their livestock. That's a bad job. Now, why would God have ordered such a terrible thing? I'm not going to tell you. I preached for 45 minutes or so on that last week. So if you want to know why God would order such a terrible thing, you should have stayed awake last week when I was talking about it. Or you can find that sermon, SoundCloud, YouTube, Facebook. It's pretty easy to find. But that's the terrible job that King Saul has been assigned as we pick up today. And this morning, we're going to read as King Saul does that bad job poorly. So let's read the rest of this chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 15, and we're going to read all of the rest, verses 4 through 35. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart down from among the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah, as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the rest of the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And they were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, and he's not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and then he turned and proceeded down to Gilgal. So Samuel came to Saul there, and Saul said to Samuel, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, They have brought from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we've utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul said to Samuel, speak, let's hear it. Verse 17, Samuel said, is it not true though, that though you were little in your own eyes, that you were made the head of the tribes of Israel and the Lord anointed you king over Israel? Isn't that true? And isn't it true that the Lord Saul sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated? Isn't that true? So why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but you rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Verse 20. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. 
I went on the mission which the Lord sent me, and I've brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, but I've utterly destroyed the rest of the Amalekites. And the people took some of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To to heed or to pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is just like the sin of divination or witchcraft. And insubordination is just like the iniquity of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and I listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of Samuel's robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Verse 29. Also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, For he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then Samuel said, or Saul said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully and Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. That's the whole chapter. Again, we're going to spend four weeks total uh, on this. We're not going to cover everything in that chapter. So if you still have questions that you want answered, and I don't get to them today, keep coming back because I still have two more weeks to disappoint you. So, So keep coming back. But today, what I want to focus on from this passage... Last week was the bad job Saul was assigned. Remember, exterminate a people group and all their animals. This week we want to look at Saul's disobedience. How Saul did that bad job poorly. What exactly his disobedience was. And then how the characters in the story, Saul, God, and Samuel. How they respond to that disobedience. In in verses 4 through 7... Saul gets off to a good start toward obedience. Saul comes up with a good plan to defeat the Amalekites. From all indications, Saul was a capable military leader. 
It really was. Saul's problem was never capability, it was priority. He had a good plan. He even made sure uh, there was this nomadic people group called the Kenites who apparently were too close for comfort, literally. And Saul got word to them, hey, I'm not supposed to destroy you, so let's get you guys out of the way before I attack the Amalekites. That's good. And the result of this good plan is a complete and total military victory. The problem was it wasn't coupled with complete and total obedience on Saul's part. Saul's disobedience starts in verse 8. When Saul had been commanded to exterminate, to kill everyone, Saul keeps the king of the Amalekites, a guy named Agag. We're not told why. If we've been paying attention to Saul and his tendency to see himself as the star of his own show, it's not hard to imagine that Saul wanted a bit of a war trophy. He wanted to enjoy that feeling of superiority over his vanquished foe. And then, in the next verse, we learn that Saul and his men did not destroy all of the livestock. They didn't exterminate all of the animals and other things of value from in there. We're told in the second part of verse 9, um, they kept the stuff that was of value. They weren't willing to slaughter them. They did slaughter everything that was despised and worthless. Now, when we're talking about Saul's disobedience, it's important to understand here, that's it. What did Saul do that was so bad that it's the last straw that he gets fired from being king of Israel? He didn't kill quite enough people and animals. Does that sound so bad? If I had started this morning and asked you, before we start, write down a list of four or five things that you think are the worst sins, how many of you would have written down not killing enough people, not killing enough animals? Last time Saul sinned and got called for it, he had church too early. This time he didn't kill enough. Oh, he, they just had some mercy. What could be so wrong with that? Here's the thing with disobedience to God. Here's the thing with all of our sin. God gets to decide what constitutes sin. Not us. Not the stuff that we don't think is all that bad. I mean, the question to ask, I mean, all we did was save some of the good stuff. The question to ask is, like, good to whom? Because God said keeping any of it's bad. So that means keeping any of it is bad. It's not good. You know, even though we will never be assigned a task like this. Regardless, our sin is always somewhat like this. 
How many times have you thought, I'm only just trying to get the good out of life? Like, that person doesn't deserve this, so maybe I can have it. It would be good for me to have it. That would sure feel good. It sure would be good for those people to like me. Who gets to define what's actually good? Me or God? In verse 12, I couldn't decide if this should be listed. There's a gap here. Listed as part of Saul's disobedience. It's certainly not something he should have done. Saul set up a monument to himself, for himself. But really, I think even that, that's a symptom of his bigger problem. See, Saul's problem is that Saul decides for himself what's good and what's bad. Saul's whole life is a monument to himself. And that's what leads to Saul's partial obedience. Like Saul's mostly obedient. Like he's almost there. But partial obedience is just disobedience in a bad hairpiece. Right? It is partial obedience. It's just it's lipstick on the pig of sin. So, now that we know what Saul's obedience was, most of the rest of what we're going to look at this morning is an argument. It's an argument between the old prophet Samuel and the disobedient king Saul. If you were here when we studied um, chapter 13 together, this is going to, some of this is going to seem like deja vu all over again, as Yogi Berra would say it. Because Saul's going to respond in some, in some very similar ways when he's confronted with his disobedience, with his sin. Okay, once again, just like in chapter 13, Saul sins, and so Samuel goes to find him, to confront him, but there's a difference right away. Because King Saul doesn't wait for Samuel to start the talking. King Saul wants to get a jump on this conversation. So, so Saul runs out to meet Samuel, and he says, May the Lord bless you. I have done what the Lord said. Just, Boy, you look good, Samuel. God loves you. I want you to know God loves you. And listen, I have been obedient. I did what God told me to do. Is that true? No. So why, does he, why does he do this? This is preemptive denial. This is not an unusual strategy, by the way. This isn't unique to Saul, not by a long shot. Sometimes when we know we've messed up, when we know we've sinned, or when we think someone else might think we've messed up or sinned, we'll do some preemptive denial. Before they have a chance to confront us, we'll raise the stakes 
of any confrontation by denying the wrong before they have a chance to say anything. It would work like this. Put some flesh on this. Let's say somehow you discovered that I'd been skimming some cash out of the offering here at church. Okay? I haven't. Or is that just preemptive denial? I don't know. No, but you, you discovered that somehow. And so you, oh, I've got to go. I don't want to. I've got to go talk to Matt about this. So you walk into my office on a Monday morning, and I say, hey, it's good to see you. The Lord bless you. You look good. The Lord God loves you. Hey, come on in, have a seat. But while you're sitting down, I say, man, I got to tell you what just happened. Joni, she's our treasurer, she just stopped by, and she told me there's some money missing from our offerings. And I got to tell you, I don't like the way she said it. I kind of felt like she was almost pointing the finger. I mean, I got to tell you, that makes me furious. There, I don't know what I would do to anybody if they ever accused me of stealing from the church. Man, that makes me angry. Now, what was it you wanted to talk about? What just happened? I've raised the stakes because now you know that if you confront me, there's not going to be any just quick confession and repentance here. If you're going to do this, you better be ready. That's what Saul does. I was obedient. Now, what do you want to talk about, Samuel? Samuel's having none of it. Samuel hears Saul say, I have carried out the command of the Lord. And then dripping with sarcasm, one reason I love Samuel so much is his his adept use of sarcasm. He basically says, if you've been so obedient, why does it sound like you're running a giant petting zoo back there? Why do I hear so many animal noises when obedience meant all the animals would be dead and they make a lot less noise when they're dead. Well, now Saul knows that his preemptive denial did not keep this confrontation from happening. It's here. So he changes strategy. He goes back to his greatest hits established in chapter 13. Do you remember what Saul did back then? What are those two ways of dealing with being confronted with sin he did? Anybody remember any of those? One is projection. The other one is rationalization. Projection is a blame shift where we try to project the fault to someone else. Either they started it, his fault wasn't me, it was him. Or uh, that they're actually the reason I had to do what I did. He does that in this. He blames his men. They're the ones that took all these animals now, that doesn't hold any water because like, he's the king, right? He doesn't say, hey, don't worry about that. I've already commanded that this be undone. I've already commanded they be slaughtered. That's just not true because he's in on this. Uh, rationalization is just when we, we try to do the mental gymnastics of figuring out some way to make it seem like our sin was the rational course of action. It really was the best thing. Under these circumstances, given, I mean, I know ordinarily this wouldn't be the right, but given where I am in this situation, couldn't be helped. 
or somehow it's good. That's what Saul, Saul says, well, we're just kept the good ones. So we have stuff to sacrifice to God. Sacrifices are good, right? So this is actually good, what we did. At this point, it's not on the screen, but at this point, Samuel interrupts the argument to say, uh, boy, wait till I tell you what God told me last night. And Saul says, let's hear it, but we don't hear it. We go right back to the argument. In verse 17, Samuel tries a different approach. He still wants King Saul to see the seriousness of his sin. So so he tries a different course, starting in verse 17. He wants him to understand it doesn't matter who you can convince that what you did was rational or uh, was someone else's fault. So he tries a different track. He says, okay, isn't it true? Um, 17. Isn't it true, Saul, that God's the only reason you're king? That's true. Isn't it true, Saul? You didn't even think you should be king, right? It's not that Saul got to be king from this, you know, shrewdly crafted uh, campaign. God just picked him. And Saul was like, who? Me? What? So Saul says, God's the only reason you have this position, right? Right. So God, the sovereign of the universe, the whole reason you have the job, he calls the shots. The shot he called was the complete destruction of the Amalekites and all their livestock, and their stock is still live So now tell me again, start over. Let's try this again. Why have you disobeyed? It's like like Samuel is trying to give Saul a way off of this track he's on, but he won't take the off ramp. He won't back down. He doubles down. He just says, but I have obeyed the Lord. You are wrong, Samuel. I went on this campaign the Lord sent me on, like he told me to go, and sure, I brought back King Agag. But I destroyed everyone else. Then the army, yeah, they took took plunder. It's what armies do. It's how they get paid. And they're going to give sacrifices to God Anyway, all he does is just repeat what he's already said, probably more forcefully. I'm the king here. Do you know who you're talking to? Well, Samuel ends this argument in verses 22 and 23. He does so by teaching, trying anyway to teach Saul. He certainly teaches us, I hope, about the importance of obedience, about the seriousness of sin. And then he finally tells Saul what God had told him the previous night. Verse 22, Samuel asks King Saul this question. Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as he does in obedience? But he doesn't let Saul answer. That's the question. 
Which does God like better? Sacrifices or obedience? Answer, certainly, surely, obedience is better than sacrifice. Paying attention, heeding, another word for obedience, is better than anything God gets out of a sacrifice. Why did God give Israel a sacrificial system? Why, why did God start that? Does God really need more dead animals? No. God, God still loves sinners. Amen? But God promised that sin costs death and blood. Same thing. So God in His grace allowed for substitutionary atonement for sin. Where in the Old Testament system, an animal could be killed instead of the sinner. Right? And that whole thing just points to Jesus. But here's why Saul's reasoning makes no sense. So God created that system of substitutionary atonement. And so God can be pleased when I, as an Old Testament sinner, realized my sin and was broken over it. I could take a sacrifice, confess my sin on that animal, and kill that animal as a way of saying, this should be me. And you've allowed this to be the animal instead. And God can accept that and it can be pleasing. But you know what would be even better to God? if I didn't sin the sin that required the sacrifice in the first place. And so Saul says, we sinned so that we had more sacrifices. Do you hear how dumb that is? Like the modern equivalent might be like, yes, I sell heroin for a living, but I tithe it, right? I mean, I, I, I steal cars and sell them on the black market. But I, but I give a tithe every week at church. God would rather not have that money, right? He doesn't need more money. He doesn't need more dead animals. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't even want that stuff. You know what he wants? He wants people whose hearts have been so given to God that it results primarily in obedience, but just we're humans and we mess stuff up, that when we fail in our obedience, then we have a desire to make up for those failures. We don't use the reality that there is a sacrifice as an excuse to perpetrate sin. That holds no water. Verse 23, the prophet says to the king, for rebellion is like the sin of divination or witchcraft. Presumption or, or um, insubordination, another synonym for rebellion, is just like idolatry. Here's what Samuel is saying. Saul, you have an attitude of, what's the big deal? I just didn't kill a guy. I just didn't slaughter a bunch of animals. And Saul says, as far as God is concerned, you'd just as well be practicing witchcraft, dude. 
You just as well be worshiping a completely different God if you think this is okay. Because sin is not sin only when you feel like it's really awful. In the second half of verse 23, Samuel tells Saul finally what God told me last night. Here it is. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you as king. Sin has consequences. Sin that can be forgiven has consequences. On earth, sin that will have no more consequence in eternity can have consequences on earth. It still causes death. Every time. And notice why Saul gets rejected. Because he's, he rejected the word of the Lord. You heard, Saul, what God told you to do. And you thought you had a better idea. That's it. You heard God's instructions and directions. And you thought there was something better for you. Saul had to choose. Saul can't just have his position that he has from God and then keep the discretion to do whatever he wanted. He, if he wanted the position he got from God, he needed to obey the God that gave him the position. Isn't that true in this story? Folks, that's still true. It's still true. Now, don't hear me, don't hear me wrong. The sacrifice that's been offered for our sin at the cross involves an irrevocable promise. Whosoever believes in him will not, but will have eternal or everlasting. We should get that decided so that when I ask you to repeat that, we do so in unison, right? So eternally, he took the consequences for our sins so we don't face those, okay? But, this, but we have a position on earth in Christ. We are kings and priests. We are his sons and daughters. We don't get to enjoy that position and still have the discretion to do whatever we want. We don't. We have to choose. Jesus talked about this all the time. It's why he said he came to bring a sword. Because right? this gospel divides. You can't tightrope walk the hilt of a sword. Right? You're on one side or the other. You have to choose. You can't serve God and money. You can't be a friend of the world and a friend of God. Right? Uh, 
we could, we could do example after example. Husbands, if you, guys, if you are married, you've been commanded by the word of the Lord, you are to love your wife, right? Lay your life down for her the way Christ laid his life down for the church, right? You can't love your wife and love porn at the same time. You got to choose. Wives, you are commanded to love, respect, honor the husband you've got. No matter how hard you wish he was like someone else, that's not the command. Well, I don't really have to because projection. Let me tell you what he did. God says you're supposed to love the husband you have. Figure out how to love him we have to choose. Saul just couldn't learn the lesson until there were real consequences. He's out. He's fired. But obedience sure would have been difficult, wouldn't it? Even in this, can you imagine telling your army, hey, all the valuables we got to destroy? We got to what? Yeah, we got to destroy all that stuff. That's how we get paid. That's how way armies work. Unpopular. We are given a picture of unpopular obedience in this story. Did you catch it? That's why I, one reason why I read the whole story, even though we're not studying a bunch of it. Let's read it again. Then Samuel, after they went back, said, bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully saying, oh man, maybe this guy's not as angry as the last guy. I got a chance to survive this thing. And Samuel said to King Agag, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Does that make you feel good? Is that a good time? Did that make Samuel friends? Sometimes obedience doesn't. Sometimes it's really, really hard and not what we would want to do. Thank God we're never going to be told to do something like that. But obedience is hard and it's lonely. So that's the story of King Saul doing a bad job poorly. This passage can teach us some stuff if we will let it, but it hurts. This, uh, this two-edged sword is sharp and it will cut you when you get close to it. So if I distill that down in, in three lessons for us, here's what I would say. First, I think it's very important for us to be mindful, be aware 
that my natural desires will often conflict with what God wants out of my life. We have to recognize that. It's important to recognize that. Everything I want is not everything God wants. Sometimes that alone will keep us out of because we're really good at convincing ourselves what we want is somehow okay. Right? So we have to be, we're not, we're not batting a thousand with the will of God. We're not. Second, because that's true, we need to refuse to live like this is the question of the Christian life. How do I get what I want out of life without doing anything too bad or without doing anything bad? I am convinced that is what most well-meaning Christians but moral people of all religions, honestly, that's what we do. I set the direction of my life, chase what I want, my goals, my desires, but because I'm a Christian, I'm, I'm going to try to not do anything too bad. I'm going to try to be good while I try to get what I want. That is a lousy counterfeit for the Christian life. And it will never work. You know how we know it will never work? Because of today's passage. It blows it out of the water. We all agreed a few minutes ago what Saul did wasn't very bad by our, on our scale of badness. Isn't that true? All he did was not kill a guy. All he did was not slaughter a bunch of livestock. That's what our life will look like when, when what we're set as our goal is what I want. We will wind up convincing ourselves this stuff isn't too bad. This is explainable. Sin is just a way bigger deal than we think it is. And we tend to make too little of it. Um, A.W. Pink, in his book, one moment please, in his book, The Attributes of God, here's what he said about our view of sin. He said, our idea of sin is practically limited to what the world calls crime. Anything short of that, we gloss over as defects, as mistakes, as infirmities, as whatever. Do you hear what he's saying there? As long as it doesn't, it's not too disgusting, it doesn't turn my stomach, we don't think it's that big of a deal. But we don't get to decide what is a big deal. God reserves the right to define sin, and he has. So, number three, here are the questions I think of the Christian life. Who is God? And what does He want? 
Who is God? Is God just the force in the sky that if I tap into it the right way will help me get what I want? No. Is God my creator? Is he the one I am accountable to? Is he is the one who gave his son to be my example, be my perfect obedience and my righteousness and die on behalf of my sins? Yes. Is he my master? Is he my Lord? Is he my sovereign? Yes, yes, yes. When we get that far, then the next question is, then what does he want? See, there's this sneaky difference between pursuing what I want and trying to be good and pursuing what God wants out of my life. Those are very different things. We're going to talk about confession and repentance next week. But here's the truth. When I have the goals of my life set on anything, they can be good things, peace in my family, uh, success in my business, whatever. When I have the goal of my life set anywhere else besides pleasing God and glorifying Him, here's what will start to happen. My sin won't seem so sinny if it's not sin that keeps me from getting what I want. I will not repent of sin that doesn't stop me from getting what I want. I will not repent of sin if it doesn't keep me from getting what I want. That's why we have to put our want under the true north of walking in fellowship with God and glorifying Him with our life and enjoying Him. Then, when I sin, sin, what I really want, I no longer have. My sin's keeping me from getting what I want. So I want to I confess, I want to repent because my sin's keeping me from what I really do want. Saul never got that. So we're going to talk about confessing and repenting and more of that next week. But maybe, just maybe, what we really need to repent of is just the direction that our life is pointed. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this 3,000-year-old book. And uh, forgive us for how Saul-like we are. God, I cannot be the only one who is convicted by a passage that shows the pitfalls of a, of a life that's aimed at anywhere besides fellowship with you and the obedience that comes with that. So God, I just want to give us just a couple of minutes uh, while just some music plays to, to do some business with you about the direction that our lives are on. That we might confess to you what we have been aimed at. Hear our prayer, O oh Lord.
God, in so many ways, we are a group of people who look at you every day and say, but God, I want to do what I want to do. And we know as long as we are aimed in that direction, no amount of self-discipline and trying hard to be good is ever going to work. May you grow us into people, God, who would say, thy will be done, not just on earth, but in this heart while I walk around on this earth, that we would give you our will, that we would get our enjoyment from doing what you desire as we walk with you. We do love you, Lord, sinful as we are. Grow us and thank you for your patience with us. In the name of our Savior, who is our righteousness, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Would you stand and we will finish.